Right, so, I'm going to talk about Isaiah 53, which is a prophecy in the Old Testament about the death of Jesus in the New Testament. Okay, so we looked at the death of Jesus last week, and I want to look at how that was spoken about hundreds of years before it actually happened. And uh, we're here to remember Jesus, and we're here to build up our relationship with him. So we're going to go deeper into understanding him. Right, so let's, uh, let's start with a prayer. Lord God, our Heavenly Father, we come to you to thank you for the Lord Jesus, to thank you for all that we have seen and known in him, to thank you for your word, the Bible, that explains this to us, and to thank you for how all that happened to him was somehow prophesied in advance. And we thank you for your word, and above all, we thank you for him. And we pray that we might build some kind of bridge between me and this life, and my life and my issues, and him there crucified. And that we might know that we are in him and with him, and that because he lives, because he resurrected, we shall live also forever and ever because of what he did. Please be with each of us in our separate paths to that connection with him, for all the stuff that goes on in our lives. For Jesus' sake. Amen. Thank you, Lord. So, Isaiah chapter 53. Who has believed our report? Our message. And to whom has the arm of Yahweh been revealed? For he, this is Jesus, grew up before him as a tender plant and as a root out of dry ground. And he has no good looks or majesty. When we see him, there is no beauty that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of suffering and acquainted with disease. He was despised as one from whom men hid their face and we didn't respect him. Surely he has borne our sickness and carried our suffering. Yet we consider him plagued, struck by God, and afflicted. So, this is about Jesus on the cross, as the rest of the chapter is going to go on to explain. To start verse 2, he grew up before him as a tender plant out of a dry ground. So imagine a, a dry desert, a wilderness. And there is this beautiful tender plant, green plant growing up out of it. And the, the point is that there was nothing in his environment that encouraged him. It was dry, but he grew up all the same out of that. Now, we all think, if only I had a better environment, then I would be far more spiritual. If only I lived in, a, some people say, in another country. If only I uh, lived with a better church. If only I was in a different domestic situation. If only my family were believers. I'd be so much more fruitful. But I'm not saying you shouldn't kind of change to some degree the best you can to get an optimal environment. But it is also true that Jesus grew up as this tender plant, as this very sensitive green plant out of a desert, out of a dry ground. Point is, there was nothing in his surroundings, in his environment, that encouraged him. And yet he grew up as this very ultimately hypersensitive person, spiritually speaking. And don't blame bad environment. Don't uh, call me, you know, I'm surrounded by bad people I work with, people I live with, all that stuff. Yeah, but God wants you to be fruitful. He wants you to be spiritual, so you can't blame your environment. If you think of the Lord Jesus, how he grew up 
he had a difficult background. I mean, he was the begotten son of God, and his mother was the only woman who got pregnant without a man. She was made pregnant by the Holy Spirit, by God. So, so he was going to be looked at, wasn't he, by everybody else as illegitimate. And his mother was a bit weird. She'd be like, they'd think she was weird. She'd have an angel came to see her. And, Oops, I got pregnant. And husband was like, yeah, yeah. Heard of that. Um, so, a bit odd. And he was poor. And they were poor. And he was the oldest son. Joseph had other kids. And he grew up as a, well, the old English says a carpenter, but in the Greek it's tecton. And a tecton is a, a manual worker, a labourer. So he grew up as a labourer, some sort of builder. And, you know, that's not a great environment, is it? Um, yeah, there's a young man working with another bunch of young guys, building or whatever. From Nazareth, which was a by our standards a village, really. Uh, and very near it, there was a massive Roman city being built called Sepolis, which you don't read about in the Gospels, but it definitely was there. And it was a boom town, there's a lot of building going on. So for sure, as a tectile, as a labourer, he would have worked there and walked that long way, very steep hills around there, to work back again with the guys. And you go home, and oh, there's a lot of the younger siblings, we haven't got money, we haven't got this, we haven't got that. And everyone thinking, get illegitimate. Yeah, your mum, she had a fling, didn't she, with a Roman soldier. You know? Well, that's what I never thought, right? She said, no, no, an angel came and I got pregnant. I'd be like, as if. You know? And that's why several times in the Gospels, people mock Jesus and say, who's your father? Mate. Well, God. Yes, me, funny, who's your father? So he didn't have a great environment. And yet, out of that dry ground, he grew up so spiritually beautiful. And that's the point for us, is you can't blame your environment, your family, who you, you work with, who you live with, all this stuff, your background. When I was a kid, you see this, that, and the other happened. Not saying it didn't, but we cannot blame anything, really, for not being fruitful before God, because God gave that background. So, he has no good looks or majesty. He has no beauty that we should desire him. Which sort of <clears throat> opens up the whole picture. You know, we love Jesus, we want to build a relationship with him. What did he look like? Was he this handsome young guy, as you see in the pictures? Uh, this very good looking guy, even blonde with blue eyes. He definitely wasn't blonde with blue eyes. That's what white Europeans have painted him as. But he was a Jew, right? That's not how he was, for sure. Um, but however he looked, he had no good looks that we should desire him. You could say it's just talking about how he was on the cross. But I would say that no, this is typical of how God works. You know, he, he was not a handsome prince. There were no good looks that we should desire him. And, you know, this is, you know, this is typical of how God works. It's like Mary. She wasn't married, and most women in those days got married when they were like 15. She got produced kids, basically, you got married. Well, she wasn't married, and then God chooses her to have Jesus. And she was poor, you know, they, they go to register um, at Bethlehem, and there's no room in the hotel. Of course, there's room in the hotel. If you've got, 
if you've got a bit of money in your pocket, I don't know, you can go and sleep in the stable with the animals. She gives birth in the stable, the animals. And contrary to how the Christmas cards painted, it was beautiful, happy animals there eating their beautiful straw and uh, all happy, smiley. You know, it's been awful. It's a young woman having her first child away from her family, away from where she grew up, <clears throat> probably no more than 15 years old. Giving birth, and it's so critical in giving birth that there's hygiene and there's cleanliness, so there's no infections and so forth. Giving birth with blood and so forth coming out <clears throat> in straw, dirty straw with animals. Animals are clean, are they? Smell of manure and so forth. And this is the birth of the Son of God. So it, it kind of fits to me that, yeah, he was not the, the handsome, good looking. Uh, guy at all. There was no good looks, there was no natural beauty that we should desire. And you wonder why God chose you and me, very ordinary people, not the great of this world. Well, that fits because this is how he was with his own son. He wasn't born in a a palace in Jerusalem or Rome with every, you know, mob Conway had in those days, not at all. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of suffering and acquainted with disease. You could take that to mean that his health wasn't good. He was often sick. You remember last week I was talking about, when I was in America, I sat next to this very large, black, southern states American lesbian woman in an airport, and I tried to preach to her and said, I don't want you Jesus, I need to have a Jesus who's like me, who is black, female from the southern states, which is in America, and who's a lesbian. (laughs) And I said to her, well, actually you have a point, actually you have a point, that we all want someone like me, but what about the Chinese bloke? He wants a Chinese. What about the Arab? He wants an Arab. What about the Jew? He wants a Jew. What about me, the white European? I I want someone like me. And I said, yeah, you've got a point, but you know what? In Jesus, there was such a unique range of experience that none of us can say, he doesn't know how I feel. This is one reason there was the cross. This is one reason why he had human nature, why he was our representative, so that none of us could say, he doesn't know how I feel. doesn't know my backstory. But that, that's why his life, in one sense, was awful. And there are a whole range of experiences right across. And so, bad health. Well, that wouldn't surprise me if he was acquainted with disease. That's why he so loved curing people. Because he thought, yeah, I know what, I know what that's like. You're in terrible pain, aren't you? Yeah, I know that. You're this, you're that. I know. Surely, verse 4, he has borne our sickness and carried our suffering, yet we considered him plagued, struck by God, and afflicted. He bore and he carried our suffering. When you read the account of the crucifixion, as we did last week, you several times read that they put the cross on him. It would have been a tree trunk, and I suggested it weighed about 40 kilograms. But they put that on him, and he carried it. And that 40 kilograms, or however much it weighed, that tree trunk, 
what can be called a cross, but it was a tree trunk, that represented our sickness and our suffering. That weighed him down. So he knows, and this is one of the simple truths, that he knows whatever we are going through, and the worst thing about suffering is you think nobody understands. I can't talk to you about it because you would not understand. Or you would say, oh you poor darling, I'm very sorry for you. And you think, well thank you, but you don't understand. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. The punishment, and the Hebrew word means the whipping, that brought our peace was on him, and by his wounds we are healed. He was pierced. Well, you think of, at the end, the, the soldiers were, and Pilate was surprised he died so quickly, and so they took a spear and pierced his side. They put the crown of thorns on his head, and the idea of that is that underneath the, the human skull, there is a network of blood vessels, which when they're pierced, will produce very profuse bleeding. And that's why they put a crown of thorns and bashed it down. There would have been blood flowing down his, uh, his back, probably, and yeah, on his face. Why was this for our sins? He was bruised for our iniquities, our sins. You even throw the records of how they treated him just before his death, before they actually put him on the, on the piece of wood on the cross. Um, three times it said, and they beat him. Herod's men, Pilate's men, and the Roman guard. They all beat him, punching. So the, 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 uh, the bruises would have started coming out. For what? For our sins. The whipping or the punishment, King James says the chastisement, that brought our peace, that is our peace with God, was on him. Whip, 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 pulling the blood, the uh, skin off his back, blood coming out. Why? For our sins, so that we might find peace with God. By his wounds we are healed. So when he rose from the dead and he meets the disciples, he says, uh, Thomas didn't believe, he said, give me your finger and put it in the holes in my hand. Give me your hand and put it in my side where the spear had gone. So even after his resurrection, he still had those marks. And in fact, there's an Old Testament prophecy that says that when he returns, he will show the Jews the marks in his hands where he was crucified, and will say, this is what my friends did to me. Very gracious, very gracious. Now, if you and I don't think we're sinners, if we think, well, I'm basically a good bloke, and it was all the others, there's a few whoopsies, but oh, whoopsies. You see, all this is not good news. Now, I know, you don't, on one hand, you know, we don't want to keep being told, you miserable sinner, you miserable sinner. But on the other hand, if we don't have that conviction of personal guilt and sin before God, then Christ is dead in vain. There is no purpose in this. This is not good news. This is only good news for those who have a conscience, for those who realise they have sinned, and well, it has been dealt with. Now, 
if you realize your sin and you see that, yes, this awful thing was actually because of me and my sin, wow, my sin has been dealt with, but it costs a lot to deal with it. Wow, then sure, you want to be baptized. I want to connect with this. I need it desperately. And it becomes good news. It becomes what has been called the magnificent defeat. Because in the eyes of men, he's a loser. All these things being done to him, pierced, whipped, bruised, punched, wounded, etc., and finally dying, he's a loser. But out of all that, there comes our forgiveness. Right, okay, talking about um, verse 6. All we like sheep have gone astray. Each one has turned to his own way. And Yahweh has laid on him the iniquity of us all. So, we like sheep have gone astray. Sheep go astray because they follow the herd. And I would say that true Christianity, biblical Christianity, is the ultimate call to individualism. That I am not going to go the way of the herd. And we all say, oh, no, but I am I'm a strong individual, but we're not. Because by nature, we don't want to be alone. By nature, we are social creatures. And if the group go that way, then that is where I shall go. From childhood, we all said or heard, either in our own, life, our own childhood or with our own kids, but they do it. But she does it. And the answer is always, yes, they do it, but you are not to do that. So, this stays with us. Like sheep, we go astray and turn to our own way. So, yeah, we all sin in our own unique way. We turn to our own way because we are sheep and we go where the herd goes. This is the problem. That we, like sheep, have gone astray. And Jesus died to get us forgiveness for being like that. And the result of realizing that is that we resolve that I will not be like that. I will not be easily led. We all know people are easily led. But actually we are all easily led. So much misbehaviour, sin or whatever you want to call it, arises because people are easily led. As a school teacher, you see this all the time, that there's a group and that group are going wrong and otherwise nice kid gets in the group and off. And this is how it is with all of us. But God laid on him the sin of us all, the sin of being like sheep. And again, we're told in the physical record of the crucifixion that they laid the cross on Jesus. But here it says that Yahweh, God, laid it on him. So when bad things happen, there is this hand of God in it. He was oppressed when he was afflicted, he didn't open his mouth. As a lamb that is led to the slaughter, and as a sheep that before her shearers is mute, so he didn't open his mouth. His silence was amazing. So Pilate says, Do you not, you're not even going to speak even to me? Now, why are lambs or sheep totally silent when they're being sheared? 
I did spend a couple of days many years ago on a sheep farm in New Zealand. And this question came up. It's an old guy had spent his life shearing sheep. And he said, they go totally dumb and won't say anything, won't make a bleat or whimper because they're so frightened. They're scared. Jesus was scared of death. Not a sin to be scared of death, but he faced death for every man. Paul says, he by God's grace tasted death for every man, every woman, every person. He by God's grace tasted death for every man. It is absolutely normal when faced with violent death to be frightened. You may say, oh no, but there's people who are very brave and who go to their death, you know, absolutely brave. I wouldn't call it brave because inside them there is the little child that's crying out in fear. But they put on that appearance because they are proud. Because they are proud, they will put on that appearance that I do not fear death, do what you wish to do. I will take it like a man. They put on a brave face in this They put on a brave face, you're right. They put on a brave face. Jesus didn't have to be put on an image. He wasn't proud, so he didn't need to show this bravery and this I'm taking it like a man sort of stuff. He didn't need to do that because he wasn't proud, he was humble. So he was just how he was. How every one of us would be, and is to some degree, frightened. Yeah, he's praying there in Gethsemane. God, take this cup from me. I don't want to drink this cup. I don't want to do it. I don't want to die. And his sweat was like great drops of blood falling to the ground. So he was saved. Hebrews 5 says, out of his fear of death. Out of his fear. He had the normal fear of death that we have. And so, as I said in our opening prayer, you can build a bridge between me here in my little life and him back there 2,000 years ago. On a day in April, on a Friday afternoon, on a hill outside Jerusalem, dying, with all the man's fear of death. This is where Emmanuel, God with us. This is where the, the distance is collapsed between him there and me and my little life, with all my fears of death, <coughs> illness, my sickness, my health issues, my pain, whatever. Yes. That distance then is collapsed. This is why Paul says, be baptized in Christ. You are in Christ. You are connected with him. This is the essence of what it is to be a Christian, to have that relationship with him. And those who are not yet baptised, please think about it and come to me and rearrange it, no problem. Now, going deeper, and as I've often said when we've gone through the Bible, the closer you look at anything God made or God wrote, the more beauty you see. The more beauty you see. You look closely, put under a microscope, what a man's written or what a man's done, the image breaks up. But when you put under the microscope what God has done, no, it gets more beautiful. Here's an example, verse 7. As a sheep that before her shearers is mute, this is a female sheep, so he didn't open his mouth. Why doesn't it 
say as a sheep before his shearers is mute, so he didn't open his mouth. And if you look at some Bibles, they've lost it. They said, ah, there must be a mistake there. They, they used the masculine. But it was a male sheep. No. Why mix the feminine and the masculine? Uh, as a female sheep, before her shearers is mute, so he did not open his mouth. And actually, the lamb, when it says as a lamb, that is actually a male lamb. As a male lamb that is led to the slaughter, and as a female sheep, that before her shearers is mute, so he didn't open his mouth. Well, I think it is to say, in his final suffering, he fully experienced male and female emotion, fear, whatever. We'll come back to that lady I nervously tried to preach to in that airport in America so many years ago. I need a Jesus who's a woman. Oh, I'm a bloke. I need a Jesus who's a man. So what Jesus are we going to get? This is the point. That through his sufferings there, the nature of it all, he can identify, genuinely identify with everybody. A woman may say, so uh, what does this male Jesus know about postnatal depression? What does he know about menstruation issues? He's a man, right? Fair point to start with. Until you understand him, until you see that actually the, the nature of his sufferings, the nature of his death, was so that nobody can say that. That the whole range of human experience, in some way, it is a bit of a mystery, I admit, but the whole range of human experience, be you male, female, or whatever, was experienced by him. That's the point. He was taken away by oppression and judgment, and as for his generation, who considered that he was cut off out of the land of the living and stricken for the disobedience of my people? So who got it at the time? Nobody. The disciples ran away. Judas betrayed him. Peter denied him. The worst thing in any kind of suffering or when you make a special effort for somebody is to be not understood. That is the worst thing, when you are not understood. And who considered, who understood that he was doing this for the sake of our people's sins? As it says in verse 1, who's believed our message? Who, who gets this? Well, nobody did at the time, and that's the point. And so, if we feel not appreciated, anyone who's had kids that have had that feeling at times and are not appreciated, anyone who's gone out of their way to do something for others, will have had this feeling at some point, but uh, they didn't appreciate it. It's not nice, is it, when you are not appreciated. When you really make an effort and you sacrifice what you could have had and you're not appreciated. It's not very nice when you're not understood. We all effectively wear a t-shirt that says, please understand me. Please understand me. Yeah, Karen, you can do it. We can all do it. Please understand me. And we want to be understood, but my little point gets me. Well, if anybody was in that position, it was the Lord Jesus. Please understand me now. Who has 
believed the messages, understood the celebrity. Who considered what was really going on? Apart from him. And this is where you do salute that he, he understood that the weight of our redemption, conquest of sin, leading us out of this mess, depended solely upon him. And it was a very lonely experience. I mean, there he was in Gethsemane. And he takes the three best disciples with him, Peter, James and John, and says, now can you just be with me? Um, this is a very difficult situation. Well, they do, they go to sleep. And he's left alone. And then he says, guys, wake up. Praise again. Well, oh, there you go, guys. To sleep again. Three times they fall asleep. Guys. And it's the... This is the whole thing of him dying so alone. You know? It is normal in the final moment of death that he took anyone who works in a frail care home or folks over that the person as they meet their end wants somebody <coughs> maybe the cleaner or somebody this is just somebody there wasn't any and even more than that there was nobody that understood the issues that were going on all of us can relate to this in one way or another because as I say we all have the t-shirt that says please understand me Bash, please understand me Nobody does. So you think you meet somebody who does. 20% they got me. 30%. And that's how it is. And if you struggle with that, and underneath we all do, well, here is the ultimate example. And this Jesus of whom we are talking is real. That he is in heaven now, looking down in the hearts and lives of every single one of us, and saying, yeah, please understand me. Yeah, I do. I do, I get you. I do get you and I do understand you. They made his grave with the wicked and with a rich man in his death. So when he died, he had these uh, thieves on both sides of him. There were three crosses. Jesus was in the middle and there were these murderers basically on both sides of him. So he was totally identified with sinners and with a rich man in his death. Joseph of Arimathea was a secret believer in Jesus and he had made himself a beautiful grave, a tomb, cut out, hewn out in the rock, in the cave. No one had ever been laid in it and he buried Jesus in that, in that tomb. When he wondered why that was, and I wonder if that is, you know, don't forget the rich guys. There are a few rich people around. Where? Where? Yeah. Uh, down in Mackers in the North End of yeah. There's a few rich people around. And what, what, what's the gospel for them? Yeah. He was buried in the grave of a rich man. And I like that. That, you know, if you're a bandit and a murderer, he died with you. You're a rich man. He was buried with you. Although he had done no violence, neither was any deceit in his mouth. What that means is he didn't sin, right? But you see how sin there is summarized as saying there was no deceit in his mouth. So to sin is to be untruthful, and to not sin is to, to be truthful. And I find interesting because we may say, well, I'm not a liar. I don't tell lies. 
Yes, maybe not, but we all tend towards having fake narratives in our head. He was characterized by never thinking or saying anything that was not true. <laughs> Whereas we tend to have this tendency to untruthfulness. And what we are called to is transparency with ourselves and with God. That is what it is to live a Christian life. Yet, verse 10, it was Yahweh's will to bruise him. He caused him to suffer. So it's not like the devil was grabbing Jesus and beating him up. No, there's no role there. It was God. God caused him to suffer. So you wonder why suffering comes from God. And, oh, God, how could you do that to me? Give me cancer. Give me poverty. Give me oh, the loss of my kids or whatever. How could you do that? Well, he did this to Jesus. But as we see here, for a bigger purpose. When you make his soul a guilt offering for sin, he will see his seed. A guilt offering. Well, under the Old Testament, if you felt guilty about a sin, you got an animal, took it to the priest, killed the animal, and you got forgiven of your sense of guilt. I want to talk a little bit about guilt. Because there is false guilt and there is true guilt. Yeah, we sin and we should take guilt for our sins. I sin, and I'm sorry, and I feel guilty, I feel bad. But there's also false guilt. Whereby you can feel guilty when you don't need to feel guilty. Society and people have put it on you. I'll give you two examples from life here in Croydon. Real life examples. Someone's saying to me, I can't go to church because I'm a sinner. And I said, oh, well, you know, what do you mean? He said, oh, I smoke. So you can say, yeah, no, I shouldn't do that. Well, and they said, well, the church I was going to, you see, the pastor's wife saw me vaping outside McDonald's. Well, you and me might say, well, good for Mrs. Pastor. I hope she had a good one. I pay no attention to her. Good for her. <laughs> but you and me may be strong enough yeah. as persons to feel like that but you know not everyone is strong enough there's people who take that real bad real bad yeah. oh, the pastor's wife is on me vaping outside I can't go to church I'm a sinner that I am yeah I'm a terrible person false guilt, fake guilt false guilt, don't take it if you're a cigarette smoker, I'm not advocating. If you're a cigarette smoker, well, you're a cigarette smoker. That is it. You yourself get over it in your own mind. Yeah? Come over it. And that says, don't take false guilt. Give you another one. A woman from, not from the UK, but lives in the UK, had been married years ago in a country that she came from, and then, well, she split up with her husband, couldn't divorce him because in their country difficult to do that. Comes to this country, finds a really nice guy, start living together, living together for 20 years and had a number of kids. But she can't marry him because she can't get the divorce paper from back home. She goes to church, oh you're living in sin. 
And I said to her, you know, would you like to be baptised? I was like preaching to her. She goes, oh, I can't, I'm living in sin. I said, well, you're living in sin, tell me about it. It's a big juicy story. And you're living in sin. I said, you're not living in sin. You can't marry a guy. You've been together for 20 years. Obviously, we're expecting our first grandchild. Well, you're not living in sin. And well, that's what the church told me. I'm living in sin, so I don't, I'm not worthy to be baptised. I, I told her this thing about guilt. I said, that's fake guilt. That's false guilt. Can, can someone mention to me, because I'm into pop I'm not going to mention who the name is yet. I mentioned that pop yet. Yeah, they said that, yeah. You know that's for the devil. Right, football. Yeah, but they were trying to make me feel, they were trying to make me feel guilty. Levi went to a football match and they say you're worshiping the devil. <laughs> right, yeah. that's fake guilt. You go to a football match and enjoy it, mate. That's false guilt. That's false guilt. Now, the thing is, we do actually sin. We actually sin. So there you are sitting at your kitchen table, trying to work it out. You've got all this guilt. That bit was false guilt, that bit, yeah, was true guilt. It's a bit difficult. And I don't think you can quite work it out. It's not by any intellectual process, consciously. That, oh, yeah, that I shouldn't feel guilty about. That I shouldn't. And here's the thing. The simple truth is that the Lord's death on the cross, we're told here, was a guilt offering for sin. Whether you should feel guilty, whether you shouldn't, that's, that's, that's one issue. The whole lot is scribbled. Whether it's legitimate guilt or not legitimate. Still, it's dealt. That's the wonderful thing of his death. So, when he, his soul will be a guilt offering for sin, he will see his seed. Well, we are his seed. We're his spiritual children. I am the children that God has given me. We are his spiritual children. So at the time he was dying, he saw us. I understand that to mean that he had a kind of vision of us to encourage him to go forward. God gave him that vision. And I wonder, seriously, if that vision included a picture of the Orchard Pub in Croydon 2,000 years later. But a bunch of ordinary guys like you and me, thinking about him and loving him and trying to understand him and promising, yeah, Jesus, I have promised to serve you to the end. Thank you, Jesus. I love you. I wonder if this, what is like, he shall see his seed at the time that he makes the guilt offer. Why a suggestion that it was a vision of us, his seed, that kept him going? How on earth did he carry on with the whole pain, mental pain, emotional pain, physical pain, I mean, how? How to keep a perfect mind in that tortured body? He was given a vision of us. Of us. And of course, not just us. In this part, but, but so many other believers down the last 2,000 years. After the suffering of his soul, verse 11, he will look on the travail of his soul and be satisfied. Travail, that's what a woman has when she brings forth a child, right? So what he was doing on the cross was travail. 
Who, who, where's the baby? Who was the baby? Of course, when they pierced his side and they came blood and water out, of course, the blood and water come out when a woman gives birth. Where was the baby when Jesus died? The pierced side, blood and water, travail of his soul. Where was the baby? The baby's you and me. That's it. It's beautiful. The baby's you and me. He will look on the travail of his soul and be satisfied. And I like to think that he looks on you and me and is satisfied. Now babies aren't perfect, right? They're annoying, they cry, they're useless. But they're lovely, and you love them because they're yours. And that is how he looks upon us. Verse 12. He will divide the spoil of the strong because he poured out his soul to death and was numbered with the transgressors, yet he bore the sin of many and made intercession for the transgressors. What does it mean to carry my sin? In the Old Testament, there are times where people say, I have sinned, but may I not bear my sin? I have sinned, but may I not bear my sin? May I not carry my sin? And I think what that means is, to carry sin means to be condemned for it. And so, although he never sinned, yet in a sense, he knows what it feels like to be condemned. Now, when we sin, we, I suppose, rightly feel there is a distance come between God and us. There is a cloud that's come between us. And that is, I suppose, so. But because of this unique experience that the Lord had on the cross, even sin, in that sense, does not separate between God and man. Because he bore our sin, it means he took condemnation for our sin. Even sin, as I say, the sense it does separate, and another sense it doesn't. Because nothing, Paul says, shall separate us from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. What's that mean? What's the love of God in Christ? The cross. God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son to die for us. So, he so loved the world that he gave Jesus. The death of Jesus is the definition of the love of God. And because of that, nothing shall separate us from that love. Not even our own sin in that sense, because if we confess it, it will be forgiven. It is dealt with. It is the guilt offering. The whole thing is scribbled. Now, this is almost too good news to believe. It's almost too good. One reason people don't believe the gospel, and gospel means good news, is because it, it's sort of too good. Where's the catch? There isn't it, actually. The only, well, I wouldn't call it a catch, but the only thing is, if you believe this in all your heart, that this is true, he died there for me of my sin is scribbled. Well, I can't be passive to that. I can't just shrug and go on just like nothing happened. No, naturally I will make a response, but not because with all the steel in my soul I force myself to. No. But because I naturally want to. That's it. And that we could call the work of the Spirit. I don't know where you want to turn to what it is about. So, this is why we're here, to remember Him. 
And it's a good thing. We've been given finally something concrete. A bit of bread and the, the cup to remember in mind. That no longer is this all abstract. But actually, finally, we have something physical upon which to focus. So, the bread represents his body. Let's just give thanks for it. Heavenly Father, we thank you with all our hearts for him. As far as we understand him, and we see through a glass darkly, but as far as we understand, we love everything we have seen and known and understand about him. And we, in our small way, take a small piece of bread as the symbol of our smallness, and yet our identification with him, with all that he stands for, and all that he was, and all that he ever shall be, with all our hearts for his sake. Amen. So that the bread represents the Right, Kevin, could you give thanks for the, uh, for the cup? Father, in the name of Jesus Christ, we thank you, Lord God, for blessing for taking of the shed blood of Jesus Christ. Bless each and every one of us as we partake in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's give thanks for the um, for the meal, on which we do believe by faith is coming. Carol, show us your thanks for food. Oh, I just want to thank um, the cherry orchards, um, all the staff that and the people in the for doing our dinners. Um, amen. Thank you, Jesus, uh, for this food that comes for us today. Thank our dear brother uh, here who is preaching your good word. And hopefully this week we trust in you that we will go forth in your name, Lord, and serve your good will. In your name, Jesus, all your people here today say amen. 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 Thanks, Carol. Thanks, Sean. Sorry. Thanks, Did I take it no, you can do it, Rob. Well. There's no wrong, right? Is it? Right. I just love hearing you pray, and I love hearing you in short pray. That's fine. I see people who use guilt the opposite way. Like, I see people in the streets of Croydon who are homeless, and they've got the Bible there in front of them, and I walk past them, and I know that the only time they ever use that Bible is it's a sense of false security for them, because they, they're not going to use it, it's just there because they say, well, I need this because if I don't have anything else, what have I got? And they use it because they hope that maybe someone will chuck them a pound down the floor. Yeah, some people use the cross, like physical yeah. cross, like the same way. Yeah. 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 Y